So get your Bibles ready. Uh, One of our elders will be coming and reading from Scripture in just a moment. But to prep you for where we are as we go back into the Gospel of Mark, no other miracle with the possible exception of the raising of Lazarus was more public for Jesus or resulted in greater aftershocks in his ministry than the multiplication of the loaves and fishes. The feeding of the masses in the wilderness was so significant, it's narrated six times in the Gospels. Matthew and Mark, in fact, both record the event being repeated a second time, which brings us to this morning's text. You see, you got up this morning, you didn't know this was going to happen, but you and I are going to have a little experience of biblical deja vu. Once again, we're going to find ourselves out in the wilderness with Jesus. Once again, Jesus is going to take the little we have and feed multitudes of people. Once again, everyone will leave Jesus satisfied, except for the religious leadership. And once again, the disciples will miss the point of what Jesus is trying to teach them. In that spirit, with that in mind, I want to invite one of our elders, Tony Hunhausen, to come forward as he's going to be reading to us from the Gospel of Mark chapter 8. Very appropriate that Pastor Chris made a comment about Nicaragua that that God has a way of multiplying things. That was a good intro to this text. Mark uh, 8, 1 to 21. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. And he he gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. After the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over, about 4,000 men were present. And having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth. No sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? This is the word of God. 
Thanks. Thanks, Thank you, Thank you Tony. On the face of it, Mark's account of the second serving of a multitude in the desert sounds very similar to the one he described to us only two chapters ago. Both encounters are intended to remind us of the Lord God feeding Moses and the Israelites manna in the wilderness. Both stories, Jesus is supposed to be seen as the good shepherd who has compassion on his scattered flock and satisfies their hunger. However, if you were paying attention, if your Bibles are still open, as Tony was reading, there are minor differences between these two accounts. To begin with, there's this greater emphasis here, this time around, on the length of time the crowd has been without food, three days, as well as the significant distance from any source of food, being in the desert with no surrounding villages. And whereas the disciples' concern initiated the first feeding story, this time around, in response to these conditions, it's Jesus' compassion that initiates the action. We all probably, of course, notice the difference in numbers. It's hard to miss that. The first miraculous pic picnic featured five loaves and two fish, becoming 12 baskets of leftovers for 5,000 men. The second time around, seven loaves and a few fish turned into seven baskets of leftovers for 4,000 men. And while it might be tempting this morning for us to try and decipher the symbolic importance in these numbers and the difference between them, that's not where we're going to focus our time together. Because putting the minor differences, and really they are minor differences of these stories aside, the question I want to wrestle with, the question I have is I think a little bit more simple. Why repeat the same miracle? Why tell the same story twice? And I think... We can all agree on the most basic level, one reason Jesus did the miracle twice is there was a real need on the part of the people. People were hungry, and they needed to be fed. But I think it's more than that. And, and one of the things right out of the gate that I want to suggest to you, if you look, as you're looking at the text, is that this story, I think, is included to show Jesus' subtle inclusion of the Gentiles. If you remember, the last time the feeding of the 5,000 took place in Galilee, predominantly Jewish territory, for therefore a Jewish crowd. But this second helping takes place in largely a Gentile region. If you go back to even chapter 7, if you remember where we are, we see Jesus is in the region of the Decapolis, an area of 10 cities on the other side of the Lake of Galilee. It's not an exclusively Gentile neighborhood, but it's mostly that. And given also what comes before this moment, what Lee took us through last week, Jesus' encounter with the Syrophoenician woman and the healing of that man who was both deaf and mute, we can deduce, I think, that this crowd that's been with Jesus for three days is in response to the healings that he's performed. And if you remember back what Lee shared with us, even though he told the people to be quiet about what they witnessed, clearly word has obviously gotten around, out and around to this outer rim of Jerusalem, to this foreign land, far away from a more traditional Jewish way of life. And I think another observation that supports this focus primarily on Gentiles is, is one that might not be readily apparent to us, is that the word basket that's used here, the Greek word that's used, used here for basket is different than the word that's used the first time, and it tends to have more of a Gentile flavor to it. The word basket used here for this second feeding actually is referring to a man-sized hamper. It's the same word that's later used in Acts to talk about the basket that Paul gets put in and gets dropped down over the wall. Significant that just to kind of just a commentary that in the feeding of the 5,000, the leftovers were filling lunch pails, where now we've got these giant hampers full of food that are left over. 
And, and, and if you step back, one of the things I hope we've seen by this point in Mark is one of the overriding symbols, not the only one, but one of the more overriding symbols that Mark is using throughout his gospel is that of a messianic banquet. It's not just in the wilderness, but it's in who Jesus sits down at table with. This idea of the messianic banquet of the Lord God, this understanding, anticipation of the Lord God feeding all those who come to him, no matter how diverse their background at the end of all things. Well, here in the wilderness, not once but twice, Jesus is presented as one who's in command in this way. He knows what he will do with the crowds despite the disciples wanting to send them away. He has compassion. Mark highlights this specifically here. Mercy, not only on his own people, but on people who are far from home, not just geographically, but ethnically as well. Jesus commands that the loaves and the fishes be brought to him, and like a host at a meal, he looks up to heaven, blesses the bread, and gives it to his disciples to distribute. And I would encourage you, if you still have your Bible open, to notice the verbs that Mark uses here. They should pop out at you. Jesus takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives. Mark, in looking back on this story, I believe is being very intentional, these verbs that he's using to point us in this moment, pointing us through this meal to the greater meal, the Lord's table that we gather around every Sunday. Beloved, one reason I think that Jesus does a similar miracle in two different areas is to show us that the Gentiles get the bread too. Mark tells us that 4,000 were served. And again, if you remember the conversation between the Seraphonician woman and Jesus from last week, apparently, based upon what just happens, the crumbs from the children's table alluded to in that conversation by the Seraphonician woman, the crumbs from the children's table are more plentiful and even more substantial than she even realized. It's a simple message but it's significant. I think it's the heart of the gospel that's being reinforced here. And it's this. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what you wear or what you look like. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you understand or you don't. It doesn't matter if you've grown up in the church all your life or if this is your first day ever reading a Bible or hearing about the Christian faith, whoever we are, wherever we come from, however we get here, we need a Savior. And that Savior is here. That Savior is Jesus. And he's your Savior as well as mine. He's no more mine than yours, but he's no less either. Jesus is Lord and Savior of all. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, a cradle Christian or a skeptic with questions, all are welcome. That's what Mark wants us to see. All are welcome and all who come to Jesus are satisfied. Unless you're a religious leader or a disciple. In the aftermath of this repeat performance of this miraculous picnic in the desert, the Pharisees, a segment of the religious leadership, come to Jesus, and you heard it, they ask for a sign from heaven to authenticate his words. And Mark tells us that in response, Jesus could only sigh deeply. It's understandable, isn't it? Earlier on, you'll remember the Pharisees were the ones accusing Jesus' power and authority as being demonic, as coming from Satan. And now these same people are asking Jesus for a direct sign from heaven that, to prove that he was indeed on a mission from God. 
But in a sense, all of Jesus' miracles were signs. They were signs affirming his proclamation from the very beginning of Mark's gospel. Do you remember it? His proclamation of the kingdom of God has come upon you. That the kingdom of God was drawing near in his person. That the Father had sent him, Jesus, to reveal his reign by working through him. This is what all of the miracles of Jesus are intended to be pointing towards. And Jesus has just fed thousands of people in the wilderness. Not once, but twice. How do you not see the significance of that? How do you miss a sign like that? Like a, it's like a gigantic billboard in neon out in the middle of the desert. He's the one. You don't miss a sign like that unless you want to miss it. Mark tells us the religious leadership was testing Jesus. Jesus will later refer to this encounter. We heard it with his disciples, this posturing of the Pharisees. He'll later say it's their yeast. And Jesus isn't being literal here. He's not talking about the baking practices of the Pharisees. He's warning against the kind of food they serve. Criticism. More pointedly, a specific brand of criticism. Hypocrisy. You know, earlier on, and I hope you've seen it, I I tried to give you some context for the Gospel of Mark by saying, and all the Gospels actually, that there's three groups of people that we see throughout the Gospels. The crowds, the critics, and the followers. And we've seen them consistently pop up. And one of the things by this, at this point we, no, we should notice is that more often than not, shockingly, but by now perhaps not surprisingly, the religious leadership are the critics. But the kind of criticism that Jesus focuses on has less to do with being religious or in leadership than it does with a posture or an attitude of being critical in a certain way. Criticism is not inherently bad. We've talked about this before. But Jesus isn't addressing good criticism. Honest and constructive criticism, criticism that's seeking the truth. He's addressing, he's warning his disciples about being critical for the sake of being critical, of being critical in an obstructive or destructive manner, in a dishonest way of avoiding the truth intentionally. Jesus cautions his disciples against the obstinate refusal to believe, to refuse to accept what God is saying and doing in spite of the evidence. In other words, be careful of refusing to eat because the meal isn't prepared the way you like it. Jesus is saying, he says this to the Pharisees and by implication is saying to the disciples, no matter how many miracles are performed, such people will never be satisfied. They'll never get a sign from God because whatever sign they get from God, they'll never accept. It's like biting the hand that feeds you without even taking a bite. I highlighted these three groups of people because I think that we find ourselves at times shifting between them. And I'm emphasizing the critics Because some of us might be more in this camp when it comes to Jesus than we realize or care to admit. I mean, do you ever notice that our default posture as human beings tends to be critical? We tend to notice, we emphasize, we more frequently vocalize what's wrong or what's missing rather than what's going well or what we appreciate. Criticisms are given and expected much more than compliments. And if you don't believe this to be true, please work in the customer service industry. We're taught to expect criticisms. Compliments surprise us. 
We have to be taught to be grateful. You don't have to be taught to complain. But Jesus is saying, and, and by the way, I, I think those two general observations about humanity, just a brief aside, I, for me, those are reflections of our brokenness. Those are not how God intended us to be. Those are reflections of the sin that is within us. They're not the good critical side, the critical spirit. And Jesus, is, that's why he's highlighting it. He's saying to the disciples here that, that, that basically if you cater to that yeast, if you make your bread with it, you become the kind of person who's never satisfied. It's never enough, no matter what it is. Your acceptance of situations, of people, of things is always conditional. We're always looking and asking for something more, for something else. And I, I, I can identify with this. I don't want to turn this into true confessions with Pastor Chris for a number of reasons. But lately... I've had a real epiphany, real kairos moment with God in my relationship with Christ. I'm an angry person. I, I have a real problem with anger. Anger that I don't even realize, what, what, why am I getting angry? And, and just sort of all of a sudden confronting this, that my default mode more often than not is to get angry, this, this critical spirit within me it was hard. It's been hard to, to, to see and to reflect on. I got angry about being angry. <laughs> and, and, and for the longest time, I wanted to, if I could just figure out what was making me angry, then that would fix everything. And, and God just kind of put in front of me, it doesn't matter. You're missing the point. It doesn't matter what you're angry about. And what I've come to understand is that the root of my anger, my critical spirit, is, is this. I'm not in control. Things aren't going the way I want them to. And I'm not just talking about this in terms of the church. I'm talking about this in my marriage. I'm talking about this with my kids. I'm talking about this with my friends. I'm not getting the signs that I'm looking for. And as I press deeper into that, and it's not fun, denial is bliss. But as I press in and I wrestle in those moments of why am I angry? Where is this critical spirit coming from? Fundamentally, what God has revealed to me is my critical spirit is a refusal to receive. It's hard for me to say this if I were just talking to you personally, but it's hard for me to say this out loud. God has made it clear to me in some pretty significant areas of my life, not all of them, but some that are pretty significant that deep down I don't trust him. To be frank, I think I'm a better Messiah. I can manage your life so well. I've got great plans for you if you would just let me manage your life. My marriage would be so much better if Beth would just let me do what I want. My kids, and they're fabulous, but they could be better if they would just listen and obey what I'm saying. And you who are my friends, oh, the wisdom you're not getting from me. <laughs> and if I go further, I think I can run the world better than my father. I got this. Never mind my own room, my own life is nothing to brag about. I mean, you know. I'm not in control. Things aren't going the way that I want them to. 
And I sit in that. And like I said, I got angry about being angry. And I sit in that. And in sitting in that, I can remain a critic. I can stay angry. And I can be blind. No sign will be given to me because there's not any sign I'm going to receive unless the one I, I get the one I want. I can be angry. I can stay a critic. Or I can receive what my father what Jesus is offering me. And the thing is, I've come to realize in the midst of this, and it's been a profound insight for me that God has given me. I've come to realize that the conflict that I'm fighting, the struggle that I'm having, the change that God is bringing, that my Father is allowing in my life, is needed, even if it isn't wanted. I hope you get this, because I think I get it. I've come to understand that I wouldn't be having the conversations that I am with my wife, with my kids, with my friends. I wouldn't be having and going deeper in my understanding of who I am in Christ. I wouldn't be being stretched in my destiny, the power and authority that God has for me in terms of the kingdom, if I didn't have these conflicts. If I didn't let God do what he's purposing to do. I know I'm not alone in this. Many of you have shared with me, directly or indirectly, that in the context of our community here at Grace, you're feeling challenged. I'm hearing that word a lot. I'm feeling challenged. Man, I'm feeling challenged. All I feel like I get is challenge. Stop challenging me. It's ticking me off. The preaching is challenging me. If you're in one of those things called a huddle that we're doing right now, you're feeling challenged in a huddle. If you're not in a huddle, you're challenged because you're not in a huddle right now. And I'm, there. I'm with you. And let me just simply say this, from, from where I'm at, what God is doing in my life, and I'm saying this to you as a question that I ask myself, maybe you are feeling constantly challenged. In whatever way you're feeling challenged, maybe you're feeling constantly challenged right now because you aren't receiving the invitation Maybe challenge is all you have because you're not receiving the invitation of living out, of being dependent upon the power and authority of Jesus. And if you're sitting here today going, I, I'm not angry, I don't, I'm not, I don't have a critical spirit, hold on, because this refusal to receive that I'm talking about that is here for us in Mark isn't just a problem for critics. If you were listening carefully, it's a labor of love for disciples as well. I firmly believe that one of the reasons Jesus repeats this miracle is to build the faith of the disciples. I mean, does anyone else find it disturbing that the disciples fail to recognize that they're in a situation with Jesus that's not all that different from one they were in just a short time ago? I mean, does anybody else cringe? Please, don't tell me I'm alone in this. Anyone else cringe when they actually say out loud, where can we get bread to feed all these people? When I'm reading it, I mean, I, every time and I look for it in all four, of the, when it's in the gospel, I almost expect Jesus to say, are you serious? Don't you just remember what we did so long ago? But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. His response is patient. Jesus says what he always says to us. Please hear this. Jesus says what he always says to us. He says this, what do you have? What do you have? What do you have? And then Jesus proceeds to show us how he works. How the economics of the kingdom 
are different than the mathematics of the world. Some of you are math, wids out, math wids, whizzes out there. Some of you, like me, learn math in school. We need to learn new math. But it gets worse before it gets better, because you heard it. After the disciples experience what amounts to a miraculous rerun, Jesus has them get back into the boat with them and head out. And Mark gives us this brief aside, which really seems strange. If you even look at it, it almost seems weird for a moment. He gives us this brief aside, letting us know the disciples forgot to bring bread for the journey. And I'm just going to give you a brief aside. How many man-sized hampers full of bread were there and they forgot to bring bread? What's up with that? But that aside, Mark tells us they forgot to bring bread. They only had one loaf between them. And it seems really odd until all of a sudden Jesus proceeds to continue to teach them. He says, be careful. He warns them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. In other words, beware of refusing to receive what's being given to you by God. You saw this coming, right? The disciples, however, are totally confused. They assume that Jesus is talking about the fact that they forgot to bring bread. Now, it hasn't happened yet, but does anyone else hear at this moment Jesus getting a little flabbergasted when he asks, why are you talking about bread? Do you still not see or understand? Beloved, they participated. They didn't just witness. They participated in Jesus feeding over 9,000 people on record with next to nothing, and they think feeding 13 guys in a boat is a problem? While they're, having one lo- while they're worrying about having one loaf of bread, Jesus tells them, did you catch this? To do the math. He asks them to recite the equations of feeding the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. And in reviewing their timetables with Jesus, in comparing how many loaves they had with how many basketfuls they picked up, Jesus is trying to bring it home for them. It's not about the bread. It was never about the bread. I am the bread of life, Jesus will say elsewhere. I provided for you then, and I can provide for you now and always. The deeper meaning of the miracle, as with all of Jesus' miracles, is to reinforce that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that Jesus does what only God can do. Again and again, Jesus continues to provide bread, healing, forgiveness, freedom, the revelation and experience of life, eternal life for the people in the wilderness, just as God provides all of these things to everyone, every day. But the disciples are worried about having one loaf of bread. The key word here, again, if you have your Bible open, that Jesus uses is remember. Jesus says, don't you remember? Everyone was filled to the point of being satisfied, and there were leftovers each time. But beloved, this this story that Mark gives us isn't just about forgetfulness. There's a lot of questions that Jesus launches at the disciples, but the one I really don't want us to miss is the one question he asks. This is not just about forgetfulness, because Jesus says, are your hearts hardened? This is Jesus' concern. It's a repeated one. He said this before to the disciples about hard-heartedness. Are your hearts hardened? And I got to tell you, this has really struck me both times because for me, when I have a thought of hard-heartedness in the Bible, I've always associated that as being just an overtly negative thing, meaning a a purposefully rebellious, kind of shake your fist in the air, the heck with you, God. And yet if you pay attention here, Jesus has repeated it twice, hard-heartedness, hard-heartedness, is not just that. Our failure or inability to receive from Jesus doesn't always have to be openly defiant or intentionally rebellious. 
Hard-heartedness as it's presented here is a spiritual condition that can result also from willful ignorance, from being unconsciously stubborn, from being slow to learn, or maybe it's better to say it this way, from being slow to apply what one is learning. Keep in mind what, what Jesus is showing the disciples here by having them recite these equations of grace from the two feedings in the desert. In reflecting to them that they remember what happened, He's reflecting that to them. They remember what happened. They were there. They saw. They counted what happened. They remember. They're just not applying what they've learned. They're not doing the math. And we could be really tough on the disciples here. But we can relate. Or at least I can. So I let go of my anger. I'm letting go of my anger. I'm realizing I'm not the Messiah. But here's where I ended up, and here's where, I, where I've been sitting. I, intellectually, up here, I believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that Jesus died to save me. I believe that, that Jesus rose from the dead. I believe these things. But this, the, the, the thing that I came up against is that there's this disconnect between my thinking, my beliefs, and the actual practice, the daily exercise of my life. This disconnect troubled me greatly. And then the Lord revealed to me my hardened heart. Not all of it. Not all of my heart is hard, but the hardened parts of my heart. And I was shocked. I was floored. How could this be? I'm the pastor. I preach. How could my heart be hardened? I want to believe. I want to believe. My mind was there. Why is my heart not into it? Why is my heart so divided? Why is my heart hardened in any place? Beloved, this encounter that Mark shares with us makes it clear. It makes it it clear of something that I had never realized before. Or maybe I didn't realize in this way. We can believe in Jesus and still not trust him. Most of the belief that we talk about is rational belief. We're very rational people. And our rational beliefs come involuntarily. The evidence sort of compels belief. And like I said, I can believe that Jesus died for me, that I cannot save myself, but Jesus can save me, and he does. And I can believe that if I accept Jesus, I have eternal life. And yet, what I believe can exist and not affect my conduct, my relationship to and with Jesus. And if if another analogy helps you, let me put it this way. We can all be presented the statistical evidence, and there's lots of it, that flying in an airplane is safer than driving in a car. And we can all believe that evidence, that flying in an airplane is safer than driving in a car on the highway, and yet I, drive around, I can drive around all the time, but never fly anywhere because I'm afraid of flying. I'm trying to help us to understand what I'm understanding is trust is a voluntary act of the will. We don't earn our salvation. Please hear that. We don't earn our salvation. But beloved, we have to work. 
We have to consciously and purposefully not just put our minds, but our lives in Jesus' hands. And it's not easy. It takes effort. We have to again and again choose to depend upon Jesus. Letting go of my anger meant confronting my lack of trust in Jesus. If I'm not in control, how's it all going to work out? If I'm not in control, how's it all going to work out? I don't know what's going to happen next. If I'm not trying to write the script, I have to wait and see. I have to pay attention and follow Jesus, what Jesus is asking and doing next. Beloved, my lack of trust was first revealed by my anger. Show me a sign, gosh darn it. But my lack of trust was even more deeply revealed by my worries. I forgot to bring the bread. There's no bread. I forgot to bring it. By this point in the gospel, the disciples, they have a clear spiritual history with Jesus. Right? I mean, they've seen, they've heard, they've witnessed and participated in a lot by following Jesus. And all of that history, everything we've seen so far has pointed back to one thing, Jesus. It's pointed them back to Jesus. But the disciples weren't doing the math. They were freaking out about bread, worrying about the cares of this world. They weren't applying what they had learned, what they had received from Jesus. And so Jesus, again, and you'll see him do it a lot, is provoking the disciples to trust him, to synthesize what they knew about Jesus from their experiences of life with him into a deeper personal understanding of who Jesus is and who they are before Jesus. Beloved, that's trust. That's trust. That's what Jesus has been and continues to lead me to do. If I let go of my anger, I become filled with worry. I find myself overly fixated on the cares of this world. I mean, this is what drove me to be a self-proclaimed Messiah in the first place. Somebody's got to carry the weight of the world on their shoulders. It might as well be me. And yet Jesus looks at me. Through the word of God... By the Spirit, His Spirit, He looks at me and He asks me, Why are you worrying about that? Why are you worrying about that? Do you still not understand? Chris, remember all we've been through together. All the experiences of my hand at work in your life, leading you, feeding you, picking you up and guiding you, oftentimes in spite of yourself. And in those moments, as Jesus looks to me and asks this question, I think of the woman that I'm married to. I think of how I, I ended up here. I never thought I'd be called to be a pastor. I've shared that with you. I think about the very fact that I'm here at this church. And it's my thoughts as they spiral, it's not just big things like that. It's even smaller things. That insight that God gave me in that moment where I was stuck, that insight that came out of nowhere, that insight that wasn't me. I was an equation I couldn't figure out. I couldn't do the math. And God gave me that insight. It's that laugh that I needed in that moment where I was just stuck in a room with no door that the lights were off on. And laughter is a gift from God. It's those moments that come to my mind and my heart. 
And in response, Jesus is looking at me, asking. i got to respond to his question. It's not just about remembering the past. It's about applying the lessons of the past. It's about doing the math. Do I not understand what Jesus has given me? Have I actually received what Jesus has given me? Or am I still convincing myself that I pulled that off? Am I receiving what Jesus has given me, or am I too busy worrying and feeling insecure about what happens next? So fixated on where my next meal is going to come from that I fail to see the table that Jesus continues to set before me. Beloved, I need to synthesize these things. I need to synthesize what I know about Jesus with what I have experienced with Jesus so that I can come into a deeper understanding and trust of who Jesus is. And of who I am before Jesus. And it's not just me. We all need to be engaging in this effort. Beloved, how many times has God provided for us in the past and yet we still have trouble trusting him for whatever we are going through in the present? How's that question for your Kairos moment this morning? Consider this your Kairos moment, maybe your first one, this question. How many times has God provided for us in the past and yet we still have trouble trusting him for whatever we're going through in the present? This Kairos card, man, it just doesn't go away. I see people chucking them sometimes, like Frisbees. They're not going anywhere. And I want to talk right now, and you're welcome here, we love you, to the critics among us. And there are critics among us. What's your Kairos moment? I hear you. You don't like the word Kairos. You don't like the shape of the circle. Fine. Heck with it. Call it a grace moment. Call it a moment of clarity. Call it a Jesus wake-up call. Whatever you want to call it. Pick, make it a pentagon if you want to. Or make it some quadrilateral triangle if that works for you. You're missing the point. It's not about the word. It's not about the shape. It's about... Jesus is speaking, and are you listening? Call it whatever you want. Remember, a Kairos moment is about trust. It's not just about belief. I have this conversation again and again with people who are struggling, and I will, it will be this simple. Do you believe that God is still talking to us? I, of course I believe that God's still talking to us. I don't think that God has stopped talking to us. You believe that God is still speaking through his word and by his spirit? Of course I believe that. God said anything to you lately? No. So you believe it, so do you think that God's just specifically not talking to you? I got nothing to say to this guy. Or are you not living out of that belief? I'm not saying it's easy. And I'm not saying it's always fun. Some of you may go, I I'm looking at this thing every week and I want to have a Kairos moment and I'm just not, God's not saying anything to me. It's not that I'm critical. I don't, I'm fine with it, but I just, nothing, I don't have nothing. Well, let me offer you this. Maybe you're moving so fast, maybe you're living from one fleeting moment to the, to the next that you don't have time or frankly any energy to hear what God is saying. Remember, the starting point of this is stopping Realizing that God is speaking. It's not one of those things where you're on the go and you just keep going like a, like a train and you're going to hear something. 
Some of us, you've readily confessed this to me and to each other, and I'm with you. I, I'm living in this right now in some parts of my life. Some of us basically say, man, Chris, I, I hear you, but sometimes the best I can do on my own is just get by, and that's right, on your own, the best you can do is just get by. And survival is great. Some of you think it's awesome that you survive. And on one sense, I, I would miss you. I'm glad you're surviving too, but please understand something. Jesus didn't come. He didn't die on the cross, so we survive. So that we would all just finally cross the finish like, oh, thank God I made it. Oh, God. That's not what he came from at all. He came so we would thrive. He came, he said, to give us abundant life now. He said he came to change how we see our lives, this world, this creation, each other, now. And the icy, the cherry on top of the Sunday, the gospel Sunday is the eternal life later. Survival isn't thriving. And maybe you're not hearing God say anything because you need to free yourself from the immediacy of the moment, from being in control, from tailoring the message. Let me give you a, a hint that's evident here. Look for the repetition in your life. God doesn't have a problem repeating himself. If you're struggling to see where God's speaking, look for the repetition, the things that keep coming up. Stay close to home, you don't have to go far. Don't lose sight of what God has done. For some of you who may be struggling to hear what God is saying in the present, let me suggest this. Maybe you're not hearing God say anything in the present because you never bothered to hear what he had to say in the past. Meaning it happened, you were there, you saw it, but you never listened to what God was trying to say in the past. It wasn't about the bread. It was never about the bread. Beloved, it's about looking back sometimes in order to get our bearings in the present. In the ups and downs of our lives, it's about realizing, it's about learning from the fixed points in our relationship with Jesus, our spiritual history. We need those fixed points in order to go forward, in order to apply them, in order to follow and trust the direction in which Jesus is taking us in the future. Do we still not understand? Do we still not see what Jesus has given us? I know, looking at every single one of you, some of you I know, some of you are here for the first time, I know this. Each one of you has a personal testimony. God is doing and has done stuff in your life. And you can, if you choose to, synthesize these things to understand God more deeply and more personally, as well as yourself. And if you're still struggling, if you go, I just don't even know where to start, let me let you in is that if, we, if together we're all confused, we, if we have nothing else, we have this. We have this table, we have this meal. If nothing else, we have this that we can say that God has given us. Yes, there is challenge in following Jesus, but we come to this table every week to see that in the midst of the challenge, there is at the same time continual invitation. What do you got? Come as you are. Open your hands, open your mouth, receive. And out of the receiving, more will come. You know, what I, I still am blown away by, because this is to talk about anger issues. What I, Jesus, in this moment with the disciples, doesn't tell them to get out of the boat. Oh, pull over. Just get, get out. Just, get, just walk. And he's not gonna. Jesus doesn't give up on us. There is great challenge in following Jesus. I don't want to shy away from that for anybody here, but there is at the same time great invitation. Jesus doesn't give up on us. He gives us his power and authority. Peter 
who puts his foot in his mouth all the time, who's going to deny Jesus, is just about, we're right almost there. He's about to be given the keys to the kingdom. James and John, along with Peter, are going to eavesdrop on a conversation between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And even for his harshest critics that we see throughout the Gospels, the religious leadership, Jesus will prayerfully weep and intercede for them, both on his way to Jerusalem, crying over the city, as well as on the cross as he dies. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And after the resurrection in the Great Commission, who do you think Jesus is talking about when he says, go, tell them, show them? He's talking about the ones who still have not seen and heard. And he's sending them with the most powerful sign of all, by the way. You want a sign, the most powerful sign of all, it has always been, it will always be in the Christian faith. The most powerful sign that Jesus lives, that Jesus has conquered death, is a changed life. Jesus says, show them you. Show them me in you. Show them the transformation that I'm doing, the work that I'm doing in you. Beloved, the same one who turned a few loaves into a banquet can transform stony hearts and hardened minds into full-fledged, authoritative, and powerful disciples if only we would be willing to learn how to receive. And it begins here. Here at this table where we let go of our anger and become conscious of our weakness. Here at this table where we remember Christ as the source of our nourishment, as the compassionate one who longs to feed us. Here at this table as we lift our eyes from the ground searching for our own bread and release our worries and trust the one who is the bread of life, the one who is more than enough, the one who always satisfies. Here at this table where we learn how to receive in order to learn how to give because that's the point. We need to learn how to receive because God desires to give through us. And the one group I have not talked to this morning, let me just offer you a brief word. I've talked to critics and I've talked to followers, but we have the crowd here as well. And we love you and you're welcome. Please don't hear what I'm saying as you can't come back. Everyone is welcome here, but some of you are in the crowd and you know who you are. And in one level, as we read the story, we might think the crowd's the way to be. They're not arguing with Jesus, looking for a sign. They're not getting it. They just are like, dude, got food? Awesome. I'm ready. But if you look at the whole of the gospel, if you look at everything that Jesus is saying, Jesus doesn't want us to just remain in the crowd. Jesus doesn't want us. He offers it to us. He doesn't hold back. But Jesus is not desiring that we just get fed and go home. And some of you, and you're welcome here, but some of you come week after week or whenever you come and you remain anonymous and you get fed and you go home and you come back and you can keep doing that. No one's restricting you from doing that, but that's not, as your pastor, what Jesus desires for you. That is not the faith that we are professing at the start of this service. Jesus is calling and inviting all of us, challenging and inviting all of us to more than that. If you're sitting in the crowd, consider it this way. If you have never thought you were anything more than a crowd dweller, Jesus wants you to consider the leftovers. Jesus wants you to consider how much of Jesus there is to share. Jesus wants, in the middle of you, keep coming with your hands open and your mouth open. To No, don't, don't hesitate doing that. But in the midst of doing it, stop, Jesus is saying, and ask yourself if anyone else is hungry. Is anyone else hungry? Because as you receive, Jesus desires to feed them through you. To bring people who don't know how to get here. 
Well, here we are. Crowd, critics, followers, probably all three at the same time. And here's Jesus taking the time, thank God, taking the time to help us remember what God has done so that hopefully we will draw the right conclusions and live by faith and walk in trust in following him. Beloved, let us remember this morning He who provided in the past can also provide for us in the present. Jesus Christ is the son of God. That's why we're here. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what Jesus has done in the past, he will continue to do in the present and he will continue to do in the future. If Christ has saved us, if he has brought us to God and provided all that we needed in the past, we can trust him. We don't need to worry about the future. Jesus fed the multitude twice. He feeds us every week and more. God provided for an entire nation in the wilderness for 40 years. And God can and he does take care of you and me. So beloved, as we continue our worship, let us sing and let us pray with joyful confidence. Let's say it and mean it. Father, give us this day our daily bread. Amen.